The reading of the Word, as we find it in Genesis chapter 15, be reading verses 1 to 11. Invite your reverent attention to the public reading of God's Word, and may God give us grace both in the reading and the hearing of it. So from Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me again in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, we bow our heads to you and we worship you. Oh, God, our Father and Creator, we worship and give you thanksgiving for you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us in to the great kingdom of your beloved Son. And we worship the beloved Son as our Redeemer and our King and the Prince of our peace. We are thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, whom we worship as the giver of new life. We are thankful that uh, you have sent him to us to give us new life, new birth. Uh, the Spirit pours into us the very love of God, and he guides us in paths of righteousness. We thank you for your fatherly care, giving us our daily bread. Uh, we have no lack. Uh, bless our offerings this morning for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven and the welfare of those in need. Uh, we pray this morning, oh Father, uh, remember the sick among us. Uh, bless all that is being done for their bodily health and welfare. We pray that they may be in good health as it is well with their souls. We pray also for those who long to be here but can't because of age or infirmity as they desire to be here and draw near to you, draw near to them where they are and bless them mightily. Uh, we uh, seek your blessings upon our homes, our children, our grandchildren. Oh, that we would see them walking in the truth. But that is a work of God, and so uh, do this for us. Send your saving grace to them, your great protection for them in this world. Protect them and us from every danger, particularly the dangers that attack us spiritually, deception, uh, the lures of the world to drift away. Uh, keep us, O oh Father. And bless us here as this congregation that we might be salt and light in this community. Beyond, bless us that we might love one another dearly and bear good witness that we belong to Christ and to the kingdom of heaven. Beyond these prayers, we all come with various needs and circumstances. You know them all. Uh, minister to us as you see best for our welfare and your glory. Now, Father, bless your word to us. May it go forth in power. May the Spirit of God open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And may he move us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, so that we may walk in the commandments of Christ. Bless us to all this end, we ask in the name of the Son. Amen. Thy will be done. 
Lord, hear our prayer. I am sure in your life, whether implicitly or explicitly, you have asked a question like, what makes churches uh, so different? Uh, I don't mean in the external issues like the number of hymns they sing or the music they use or the size of the church, but different uh, in terms of uh, their theology. Uh, Generally, we gloss over those things because we have a very low view of uh, a belief system, but we uh, should be very careful in glossing over uh, because the scriptures contain uh, the revelation of God, which contains the way of salvation. And one of the major things that uh, makes us different is uh, we believe in um, certainly grace alone. Uh, most every other religion in the world believes in works to prepare yourself to stand before God in judgment. So you you make yourself a good person. You do good things, and therefore God's going to accept you. Um, problem with that is, uh, if you understand the fall from Genesis chapter 3, uh, men are no longer spiritually good. Uh, essentially, they're dead spiritually. Uh, so there's a profound issue with that theology. Uh, how do human beings that are imperfect um, do perfect works to satisfy a perfect God? I mean, those are non sequiturs, aren't they? You can't do perfect works. And God is the beauty of all perfection and glory. Think about that. How can I have access to him? Uh, It's very sad. Uh, That's true of not only uh, many of the different religions of the world, but uh, many, many denominations and churches believe that, uh, well, God does his part and I need to add to what he's done. And we call that faith and works. I qualify myself, and then God helps me, and uh, he accepts me on the basis of what I've done and then what he's done. Well, again, what have you done? Uh, how can it that a perfect God be satisfied with imperfection? And we all do things imperfectly. Uh, I love my wife imperfectly. Um, I do most everything imperfectly. Why? Because of my fallen nature. So I need something better than my works. And you do too. Um, It's interesting that uh, Abraham, or Abram, uh, is encountered by God who gives us uh, one of the major differences. I'd like to couch it in terms of church history. Uh, If you read uh, the outset of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He lived a, wow, he lived one of those wow lives. Like, you've got to be kidding me. You know why? Because he was trying to become perfect. The question that plagued him is a profound one. Have I done enough? <laughs> now, that's a scary question when you're thinking about entering the presence of the God of all perfection. Have, have you done enough? So well, with that question, the promises of God are renewed uh, uh, to Abram. Uh, he tells Abram that he's going to give him many sons in verses 1 to 6. He's also going to give him the land in verses 7 to 11. So God's way of salvation is revealed in his word. Uh, in his word, verses 1 to 6. Uh, we read in verse 1, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Uh, the importance there is the word of the Lord. Uh, I might add very quickly that I do not believe in continuing revelation of God in visions or dreams. Uh, a number of reasons, but simply one of them is uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In the old times, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says, God spoke to us in visions and dreams and by the prophets. Uh, but now he has spoken to us in his Son. The revelation of God in his Son. And the beauty of that is that it shouts to us 
uh, the reality that we must hear him. This places a premium on the inspired record that God has left for us, and you and I know as the canon of Scripture, because God that's God's record to us. Uh, the content here is the renewal of the promises uh, to Abram. It's a promise renewal event. Uh, we've already studied the promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, uh, but God comes to remind him, uh, just like he constantly reminds us when we're reading the scriptures. Uh, we need to be reminded that God deals with us on the basis of grace. We need to be reminded of his protection of his people. We need those reminders because we become fearful and anxious and terrified sometimes. Uh, the older you get, life can be a fearful thing. Uh, so we need God's encouragement that comes from his word. And so he, here he encourages Abram not to be fearful. Uh, the immediate context is somewhat uh, important uh, to that uh, reminder. Uh, for example, there there was his chapter 14, military engagements with multiple kings. Uh, military threats abound, don't they, even today? Uh, plus he is uh, one family surrounded by hostile nations. Uh, the Gentiles are in the land that were promised uh, to Abram by God. Well, how do you displace them? The promise here is uh, that God will be his shield, protector and defender. Um, he is a shield to us. Uh, if God, figuratively speaking, wasn't your protector and defender, you would be swept away by deception. Uh, the actions of uh, the forces of evil uh, would... Um, would wreck great harm upon your soul. Uh, well, God is our king, so he becomes our defender. He says, I'll also, Abram, make your reward very great. How does Abram respond <laughs> to those promises? Well, he does something that you and I do to, on occasion. Um, yeah, we should do it. It's okay to do it with God, but you should do it very, very carefully. Uh, um, and I think the complaint uh, in and of itself is a real source of his fears. Uh, first, uh, he is childless. Uh, context is God promised him a son. So he's casting about, you know, maybe God needs my help. I mean, uh, well, God's promised him a son. So what does that mean to Abram? Uh, the text is literally, I'm going stripped. I don't have a son. I'm stripped of children. You promised me many, I'm stripped. Uh, we could also paraphrase that, and really the theological reality is that I have no ability. And what's worse, I'm getting older. Secondly, he doesn't own any land. Uh, we will learn at some point in the book of Genesis, he's going to buy a burial place. That's the only land Abram really owned. God promised him the entirety of the land. So here's a burial place? You've got to be kidding me. God sometimes uh, is uh, slow about his promises, and sometimes they come in bits and pieces, but he is never late. And at some point, we get the whole. Uh, his, uh, his only possible heir, he's reasoning. Now, I believe in reason. I believe in logic and reason. God gave us brains and we should use them. Um, but we also have scripture, so it's faith and reason. But so he's reasoning here. He doesn't have all of scripture like we do. He says, well, I have a, I have a possible heir in my steward Eleazar. Oh, he's casting about it. Well, you know, God, <laughs> I am stripped. I'm going to help God out. He, he must need my help. Provide a solution for him. It's very, it's very interesting to me. The name uh, Eliezer uh, is literally, my God is help. Shortened form of God, El, 
my, attached to it, the Hebrew text, help. You think about that when you get fearful um, um, or you wonder about the promises of God in eternity. God has helped to his sons and daughters. But the complaints are legitimate. Certainly we have to admit that. God promises us, you know, heaven and uh, the majesty and beauty of eternal sonship. Uh, you ever say to yourself, well, I wish you would hurry up. Uh, and why am I such a threatened minority in the world as, as a Christian? So having offered God his, uh, his help, um, God does what he does for his sons who don't, who don't get it. They're a little slow like me. Verse 4, the word comes again. Now God tells him that Eliezer is not going to be the man. Essentially for me, he's saying, I don't need your help. I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth and all the majesty of it and natural law for the beauty of its order. Think about that. If God needed your help, He wouldn't be God. Now many people, sadly to say, have such a low view of God that they think that God does need their help. Well, if you have the right view of God, you understand. God is help. He says, no, it's going to be the promised biological son that you're going to have. Biological, His and Sarah's. Then God does something that's incredible. He escalates the promise. He doesn't have a son yet. God promises his son. Now he's going to escalate it in a profound way. Takes him outside and tells him, your descendants will be uh, like the stars of the heavens. The author of the book of Hebrews uh, parallels uh, the word stars with the sand on the seashore. Hebrews 11.2. Now that's a lot of sons. Uh, I would need that parallel of beach because I've been to great beaches in the world. Caribbean, East Coast, West Coast, uh, Mediterranean uh, has sandy beaches. The beach I was on was rocky. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Anyway, that's an aside. I, I guess count the rocks where I was. I would need the parallel because if you're like me, you go out in the evening in uh, the Oklahoma, if you look at sun, yeah, I, I could literally count the stars. Why? Because of the ambient light. You go to a place maybe with a higher elevation where there's no ambient light, and it's like wowzers. That's what Abram is seeing. Uh, and then his, uh, his response uh, brings to us one of the greatest theological realities of the doctrines of our faith that make us different. Let's look at uh, the text, verse 6. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Two beautiful realities there that make us different. Faith, belief alone, and the righteousness that God uh, adds to our account. Uh, the promise uh, that's contained in the verb believe carries the nuance of what is firm, reliable, independable. In other words, God is trustworthy. What He says is true. What He does is true. Uh, so the promise appears impossible, but Abram believes that God will make it happen. Uh, and I, I do remind you of the critical prepositional phrase, in the Lord. He believed in the Lord. He didn't believe in what he could do and what Sarah could do because that's becoming more and more of a biological uncertainty, if not impossibility. He believes that the Lord can make it happen. 
the object of the prepositional phrase, the Lord, sweeps away all vague and vacuous spiritualism to say nothing of every religion other than Orthodox Christianity. Because they have other gods, or they supplement the work of God. And again, if God needs you to supplement his work, he's, you know, he may be Superman or Wonder Woman. Uh, he's neither of those. He's the Lord God of all perfection and beauty and majesty and glory. Uh, what happens when he exercises faith alone? God reckons or counts or credits to Abraham, Abram, righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Paul quotes this text, if you have a New Testament, uh, to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3. And you and I know that the New Testament is the superior revelation because of its clarity to the old. Uh, we believe that Scripture interprets Scripture, so Paul's going to give us a little bit of interpretive insight uh, to Genesis 15.6. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because you can't be justified by works. Because works are imperfect, God is perfect. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Look down to verses 21 to 25. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Who was able to perform it? God was able to perform. God's the God of the impossible. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he's expanding upon Genesis 15, 6. Paul can do that. I can't. But the expansion is here. He believed that God was able in his power and majesty to create many sons. Now notice the beauty of Paul's expansion. Verse 23 and not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake only, you and me. We have to do what Abraham did, believe in the Lord. And God reckons it to our account, righteousness. Written for us, now brought into the New Testament. Who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Ultimate fulfillment is this in Christ. In an expansive way. Him who was delivered up because of our transgression and was raised for our justification. Justification, the righteousness of God, reckoned to our account, expanding on the beauty and the majesty that Abram believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him, the very righteousness of God. Incredible. Should be incredible to each of us. Because the base, entire basis, the only basis, the sole basis of our salvation is the imputed righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Only basis. Nothing else will do. Nothing. No other religion works. A context of, uh, of, uh, Romans is just a reminder that in an instant, although fallen and imperfect, Abram now has full and complete acceptance with God as a gift of God's grace. The context is the righteousness of God, entire basis of justification. It's had by faith alone and grace alone. That's what Moses and Abram are telling us. Pardon me. Moses and Paul. So Paul is using the great Patriarch is an illustration. And the use of the Old Testament and the New is authoritative and theological. So in one historic moment, Abraham sweeps away all forms of acceptance with God 
accepting his own provision of imputed righteousness. I'll tell you one day I was listening to some men proclaim the word of God and uh, one of the gentlemen uh, quoted Isaiah 64.6. In a moment I understood something I was struggling with. Isaiah says, all our righteousness is filthy rags. You're going to take your works before God and say, pony up and save me? The word of the Lord says, filthy rags. Your works, as good as they be as they are, pardon me, in civil society and to our neighbors and children and on and on. I mean, they're, they're wonderful, but they don't count before God. Only God's work alone counts before God. Abraham believes it. In one historic moment, we're reminded the one provision of imputed righteousness. And Paul has told us that promise is for us. If you're not a Christian, don't say, Phil, uh, tell me what I need to do. Uh, what works can I do? Yeah. Just believe in the Lord. Him alone. And what he did. The resurrected Lord who was raised for our justification. Believe in that Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's a righteousness secured by faith as an effect with the cause being God's sovereign gift to Abraham because he's unable and did not deserve or earn the promise. And again, I remind you, the righteousness that was imputed to him is not Abraham's. It's God's. Uh, you and I should know from uh, Paul in the book of Romans that justification is a legal declaration by the court of heaven, the most exacting court in all the world because it demands perfection, uh, that when you believe in the Lord and His righteousness is credited to you, uh, the court declares you as not guilty. Incredible. We are guilty. We were born guilty. But because of the work of the Son for us, because of faith alone, in his righteousness alone, we are declared not guilty. I'm going to add something that people struggle with, but it's certainly profoundly true. Not guilty for all time. Let that sink in for all time. Because the word of the Lord is immutable. God doesn't renege on his promises. Uh, Paul also uses this text in Galatians chapter 3. Again, turn in your New Testaments. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 to 9. Even Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There's the quotation from Genesis 15, 6. Paul is now bringing it into the new. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. Of faith of the sons of Abraham. And the scripture for saying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Paul is telling us is that you and I come the same way as Abraham in the book of Genesis. No other way works. We are the sons. Abraham is going to go on to have a son, but God promised him many. You and I are the sons because of the work of Christ. Yeah. I always smile to myself in an ironic way of uh, Messianic Christians. I don't need to resurrect the traditions of the Old Testament. I'm a son of Abraham by faith in Christ. Incredible. So you think there are a lot of sons like the stars of the heaven throughout the centuries of the church? Yes, indeed. Without question. Contextually, in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers are doing something to the church that if apprehended by the church and received by the church uh, will slowly begin to destroy the faith. 
And that is essentially, it's, uh, yes, faith is important. We get that, Paul. But it's faith plus something. In their case, it was circumcision. It's always faith plus something. Isn't it? Faith plus. Faith plus works. Sad to say, many Christian denominations have bought into that system. I, quite frankly, it's incredible to me, but that's one of the things that makes Reformed churches entirely different. We believe in faith alone. I'm not discounting works, but that's on another different page and ledger. We're talking about the theology of justification. Uh, of being made uh, righteous before God and being declared not guilty forever. Faith plus. Uh, faith plus baptism. Uh, I don't know. You can fill in the blanks. You know, faith plus um, tearing up your will and putting, I'm leaving everything to I don't know. Let's say Grace Bible Church. No, by the way, don't do that. I'm not being silly, but it's all silliness. Really, I can supplement God's work. God's work. He does His part, and I got to do mine. And if you will, you're saying you can kind of perfect it. What Jesus did was, oh wow, wonderful. But I need to kind of tweak it a little bit, add a few things to it. My friend, the moment you go adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ, you slowly begin. They're corrupted. And that's dangerous. We're different. It's faith alone. Plus, Paul is confirming to us that the same gospel that saved Abraham saves us. Think about that. Our gospel is unchanged from the centuries of the church. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, certainly, there's an elucidation in chapter 15. As, as the revelation grows and expands in God's grace, we get clarity all along the way. I kind of wondered about this. Type. This is the first time Abraham becomes, if you will, a Christian. Just like we become Christians. I kind of, you know, well, he's been following the Lord, but however you break out, I don't really have the answer to that other than Abraham's clarity uh, has achieved, if you will, uh, a point where uh, he he trusts God, that God will really make it happen. Think about it. He thought, well, um, Sarah and I can't have children, so maybe my son is Lot. No, it's not Lot. Um, in fact, as you know, Lot, you know, Lot has some problems. Well, maybe it's Eliezer. No, it's not Eliezer. So the beauty of his faith is that now he apprehends in looking at the stars that God is able to make it happen. And God makes it happen, doesn't he, in Christ. Certainly there was always a remnant in the Old Testament. becomes expansive in the New. And if you count all the sons of God from the centuries, from Genesis 3 to Genesis 15, 6, there were many sons of glory. And how did they become sons of glory? By uh, helping God out? Adding to what only God can do? No. Faith alone. Uh, that's why I, I had us read this morning one of the great confessions of the church, Shorter Catechism, part of the Westminster Assembly, when he pardons all our sins. That's a profound statement. Most churches believe that, well, he pardons some of them, but or he pardons all of them, and then you can muck it up. He needs to pardon you again. I don't believe in again. God doesn't do again. Doesn't have to do again when it comes to salvation. Pardons all our sins. That's why I said momentarily, a few moments ago, forever. And accepts us as righteous in his sight. Based on what? only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So Abraham, in a way, in a germ-like form, 
saw the finished work of Christ and that God would resurrect him. And Christ ultimately fulfills the promise. He ultimately understands in the promise that there's going to come a, a redeemer uh, who he will help me have many sons. He's going to have a biological son, but he needs a little help because of his age. Christ is going to finish it and give him many sons. If you've trusted Christ as your redeemer, you're numbered among the sons of Abraham. I always get tickled by people. Well, this person is ethnic Jew, son of Abraham. No, no. We are the sons of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And I would I would remind you of something that is radically important uh, to understand. Uh, faith does not save you. It's the means. God alone saves. Christ alone saves. And it's very important you understand uh, uh, the adjective becomes critical. Because if you change the adjective, it changes the work. If it's uh, God saves and you help him out, I've just changed who God is and changed what, he's, what he does. So when I say faith alone and grace alone, it's important to remember the word alone. Because nothing else saves. Uh, God alone in Christ. So Abraham is yet to have a son and Christ will give him many. Ultimate fulfillments across. Many sons. Christ purchased many sons. Uh, it's the most incredible reality of the redemptive work of our Savior. One, one person, one death, one sacrifice, so perfect, it becomes the ability to create many sons, like the stars of the Milky Way. No, that's not enough of every galaxy in the entire created universe. So, um, what are the things uh, that makes the Reformed Church different? is what occurs at Genesis 15.6. By the way, I would uh, remind you, uh, uh, as you trace the history of the church, certainly you begin to move away from the first century church throughout the centuries, uh, the church begins to muck that theology up. Because that's what men do. Even the best of men, or men at best, and, and, and they try to add things uh, because uh, they think, well, God needs me to tweak his word and his promise. Uh, so when you come to the Protestant Reformation, uh, 16th, 17th century, probably the greatest revival in all the world. Been other revivals, but I think that's the greatest because clarity comes again to the church that it's God's work alone to create the stars. And we are numbered as the stars are numbered because we have faith in Christ. And faith in Him, He credits uh, to us His very own righteousness. And nothing else will do. And we're pardoned forever. Uh, historically, I believe that the sole cause of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine of justification. I understand the church needed moral reform. The priests were were corrupt, and uh, I don't need to get into the corruption. But we, I mean, we see that today. You read the newspaper about priests. Uh, well, I don't need to get into what they did, and some Christian ministers do the same. So it infects us as well. Men are. You understand what I'm saying. So the church is reformed morally, but that's not really the entire beauty of the Protestant Reformation. It was reformed doctrinally in the doctrine of justification. If you will, the church resurrected the beauty and the majesty of Genesis 15.6. Religion contends that we can make ourselves acceptable to God. Uh, but God, God does not save the qualified because none are qualified, Genesis 3. 
Genesis teaches us that God saves the lost because none are qualified. When you come to Rome, justification is a process whereby we contribute a measure of our morality and predispositions for the reception of the grace of justification. In other words, uh, I play a part. I've got to, I've got to have the proper disposition. Now add that to the work of God and I'm justified. Uh, so that we prepare ourselves, uh, for the acceptance of this great gift, uh, by works. So that in Roman Catholic theology, it's a moral event of infused righteousness within us. Now, that's a mouthful and, um, I really can't explain it uh, all, but I'd like you just simply to ponder within us. In explaining to you from the scriptures and the catechism uh, that uh, justification is uh, uh, a legal event of the imputed righteousness of Christ, uh, the court declares us not guilty. That's not within us. That's outside of us. The court declares it. In other words, it's, if you will, some theologians say alien to us. Uh, and Paul confirms Romans 4, Galatians 3, that imputation is a legal event alien to us, namely outside of us. Uh, another very popular, large, expanding church in America is uh, uh, Orthodoxy. Greek Orthodox, Rome, Rome, Russian Orthodox, all the different uh, Orthodox churches. Uh, it's very similar. Faith and works. God does his part. We need to add, we need to do some addition here. We need to do our part, faith and works. Very interesting that in the theology of the Orthodox Church, there is no doctrine of justification. It's a profound absence of incredible significance. Uh, Paul has a doctrine. So does Moses. Genesis 15, 6. Uh, by the way, uh, something that's also essential, if you understand the doctrine of justification, uh, you understand that God in his scriptures has just now nullified, nullified the ordination of the priests of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches um, You know why? Because we have a priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the high priest of heaven. You need no other. None other will do. I mean, in Roman Catholic theology, the church is mediating grace. No, Christ mediates grace. I may be the means of grace, but I don't mediate it. He alone does. Abraham believed and by the way, we're going to learn it was prior to his circumcision because that's what destroys the Judaizers that were plaguing the church at Galatia. He's not circumcised until Genesis 17. At that point, he was 99 years old. In other words, by faith alone. The reason Genesis 3, the fall, temporal and imperfect works nullify the promise and will fail because they cannot withstand uh, the divine judgment that is uh, perfection. His judgment's perfection, so is his mercy in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ is what satisfies the wrath of God against us and is therefore the entire basis of our salvation. No other basis. Entire basis, a basis alone, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. How do I stand before God and be accepted before God? The imputed righteousness of Christ. By believing, we also inherit the spoils of our inheritance that he won for us. It all comes to us. We are the heirs. Abraham was an heir. So are we. We are written in God's will. I might add that the imputation is permanent because Christ does not and cannot fail and neither can his promises in the word. Uh, the Father always accepts those into his court and into his presence. Uh, those who are accepted in his beloved and what he accomplished for us 
uh, for us and not in us. Why does God accept me? I'm fallen. I believe that. Ask my wife. Ask my sons. They'll, they'll confirm it. How does God accept me? He's perfect. The righteousness of His Son charged or counted to our legal ledger before the court of heaven. He accepts me based upon the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Fully, fully, just as He accepted Abraham. Furthermore, if we say that Christ can lose the saved, then we redefine the gospel and the promise. Now I would remind you very quickly, I'm saying faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Well, what about works? I mean, the scriptures talk about doing works like prayer and uh, sharing the gospel, going to church, um, so on and so forth. I, I don't need to elucidate any further. Um, well, again, the Spirit. Now, I'm changed, I've changed from the Son to the Spirit. The Spirit works in us. Uh, the work of the Son is outside of us in a courtroom. He was our advocate, the basis of our not guilty declaration before the whole world and the whole universe throughout all time. And now the Spirit comes because of what Christ did. The Spirit comes to work in us. What Christ did was outside of us. The Spirit does is in us. You know, by the way, that in and of itself is a profound work of grace. Because the Spirit's going to take those whom Christ purchased upon the cross and, and begin to work moral renewal in their lives and begin to transform them over time and in decree. How? By how God does everything for us. By grace. By grace. So the Spirit works in us and causes works. And the moral transformation over time and in degree that He works is evidence of His grace. I sometimes lay awake at night. Uh, this can't be. But the works that are done, I know, well, that's evidence of the grace of God at work in my life. Because I would have never done that outside of Christ. Well, in verse 8, the land promises are also confirmed as well, pointing to a greater reality. So the land promises point to a greater reality. Let's turn, I'm not going to define that. I'm going to let the author of the book of Hebrews define it. So if you would, in your New Testaments, uh, turn to the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Uh, read very quickly uh, verse 10. Um, for Abram, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God's going to build the city. He's architecturally designed it. He will construct it. The builder is God. I'm always amazed by people say, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what's happening in the Middle East and what God is going to do there and tangible things that I can see and touch. I'm looking way beyond that. If that's something that you hold dear, fine and dandy. I'm certainly, uh, wish Israel the best as a nation because they're a liberal democracy, but, uh, my promises don't go there. My promises are to heaven and the city God is going to build that will someday come out of heaven and receive all of its citizens, namely those who are declared righteous by the righteousness of Christ charged to their account. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, you bet, heaven and all of its glory. Uh, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's been removed from the earth. It's now in heaven untouchable by all those who are angry perpetually at Israel. They can't get at that city. Thank God. And it'll come for us. If you know the Savior. Uh, God's way is validated in the signing ceremony, verses 8 to 10. So God's going to validate it. It says, Abraham, go get some sacrificial animals. Uh, the sacrificial system, as you know from the Old Testament, points to a greater and final sacrifice in the New that you and I know is Jesus Christ. Uh, and His purpose, pardon me, 
perfect sacrifice of himself. Uh, Abraham does something that's very unique. He chases the birds of prey away. Here he is killing animals, so the crows show up and uh, all the birds of prey show up. Many of those, as you know, were unclean animals in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, Abraham doesn't know that, but he drives them away because he doesn't want to contaminate the uh, sacrifice. I just illustrate to you, be very careful of contaminating the sacrifice of Christ. I believe the Roman Catholic Church does that by repeating the sacrifice in, uh, of Christ in the Mass every Sunday. Theological problem is that you don't repeat perfection. Perfection is not repeatable. You can't repeat it. And if you do, you begin to corrupt it. If I don't sacrifice Christ, uh, that used to be a table where the, where Christ was sacrificed every Sunday in the Mass. He was sacrificed, all through the book of Hebrews gives clarity, one time for all time. So God receives us on the basis of what His eternal Son Christ did for us. So that the basis of our salvation is the imputed righteousness of Christ to our account alone. So the promise, ultimately, we know from the scriptures, is what God did for us in Christ. He's the greater fulfillment who creates many sons. Like Abraham, we can rely on it. It's true. It's reliable. God delivers. It's not going to fail Abraham. It won't fail us either. So the question for you is, have you done enough? Christ has. Believe and hope in Him. Alone. And His righteousness alone will be yours forever.